so as we uh, start off this morning, I want to talk a little bit about some heroes. Um, you know, if we look at fiction, there are quite a few amazing heroes throughout fiction, novels, uh, books, movies, television, and things like that. These heroes, they give us things in their actions such as hope and optimism. We get incredible feats of strength, of endurance, of courage, of heart. And all of these usually are going against very extreme odds. So today I want to talk about two very different heroes and compare them. And so I doubt anybody would have guessed I was going to compare these two heroes. The first one is Atticus Finch. The second one is Luke Skywalker. So let's talk about Atticus Finch first. Atticus Finch is the hero of To Kill a Mockingbird. He is a white man living in the South where a black man has been charged with a crime he did not commit. Atticus is a lawyer, and he stands up for this black man in a court setting with an all-white jury and stands up for equality and justice. For the last 50 years, from the time that this book was written all the way up until just recently, Atticus was a hero to many who had read his book, read the book about him. Luke Skywalker, on the other hand, lived a long time ago in a galaxy very far away. <laughs> this galaxy is the Star Wars universe. Luke is also very much a hero. He's positive, he's plucky, sometimes very annoyingly so, especially in the first movie, right? Goes from being nobody to the last Jedi, the last practicing Jedi. If you don't know what a Jedi is, basically it's a person with magical powers. Uh, and he stands up against the universe-enslaving empire, which is led by, partially led by his father. Sorry for that spoiler. Both Finch and Skywalker faced impossible odds. They faced odds that were overwhelming. Finch is, is all about people's perception on race. Luke is an industrial complex going against these few rebels. Now, I want to fast forward, though. From when Atticus Finch was first introduced to the American public, 55 years in the future, to where a few years ago, a sequel to To Kill a Mockingbird came out. Luke Skywalker was introduced in the 1970s, his last movie in 1983. 34 years later, there is another sequel, and this one called The Last Jedi. Now, what's interesting about both of these sequels the sequel to Kill a Mockingbird and the sequel to the last of the Star Wars movies, is that in both Atticus Finch and Luke Skywalker lose a lot of what made them our heroes. Atticus Finch's sequel, which was written by the same author but written before To Kill a Mockingbird, comes out after. Atticus is a few years older. His daughter, Scout, is now a young woman, and he is an avowed racist. He's a white supremacist. He's gone against everything he stood for in To Kill a Mockingbird. Luke Skywalker in The Last Jedi, he is no longer the optimistic hero who's going to take down the bad guys. Instead, he is a wither, weathered old man, grumpily sitting around, not wanting anything to do with anyone. Now, when these works of fiction came out, people mourned. And these are fiction. Fiction. That means not real. There is no Luke Skywalker. 
There is no Atticus Finch. But yet, both of these sequels were met with absolute hatred by many, many people. Why is that? Well, the reason is, is because they were their heroes, and their heroes were not acting like the hero they were. And I think what this has done is I think this has kind of brought out in us the thing that we hate about real-life heroes, is that many times people that we look up to, something happens, and we have to think less of them. We could go through countless historical figures. We could go through people in your lifetime and in mine where we go, this was somebody I thought was pretty amazing. And lo and behold, that person might actually be a monster. That person might not be the hero I thought he was. So we are shocked when these things happen in real life. Now let's get to the hero that actually matters. Jesus is the hero of every single story in the Bible. And so we should expect that these stories are going to be about him and paint him in a good light because he is the hero. However, sometimes we come across things and we go, really? Like, what, what are you doing here, Jesus? This makes no sense. This doesn't seem to match. Today's story is one of those. Let's do a quick overview of it. Let's do a really superficial look at it. So Jesus is going to a place called Tyre and Sidon. This is up in the north. It's a long ways away from the Jews. He hangs out there, a Canaanite woman comes up. She comes up to him. This is a great opportunity for some cross-cultural witness. She comes up to him and says, my daughter has a demon. I mean, who could resist that request? Jesus has taken care of demons before. This distraught mother asks Jesus, have mercy on me. And what does Jesus do? He ignores her. Matthew points it out. He ignores her. Then the disciples say, send her away, send her away. We don't need her. And then Jesus says, yeah, I'm not here for the Gentiles. I'm only here for the Jews. This doesn't stop that lady. She asks again, heal my daughter. And then Jesus says, it is not right to take the children's bread and give it to a dog. What he's saying is, woman, you are a dog. I'm not giving you my bread. I didn't come here for you. As a matter of fact, I'd prefer to ignore you. This does not seem to match up with the Jesus we know. Matthew has been painting for the last 15 chapters this picture of Jesus. And this does not seem to match. And the problem with this is, this, this is not a fictitious character. This is not Atticus Finch. This is not Luke Skywalker. This is not some made-up character. This is a historical character. And Matthew is recounting this story, and we go... Was Jesus just having a bad day? Did he need a Snickers? <laughs> what was going on here? Some people look at this and they say, see, this proves the Bible's not true. Uh, uh, R.C. Sproul told a story of a female Bible teacher who said, this episode proves the humanity of Jesus. Not only his humanity, but his fallen humanity. Meaning, he's not God. He's just a man. He was dealing with this woman with other disregard, contempt, insolence, and something akin to male chauvinism. This episode confirms that Jesus had sinned. That's a pretty big charge, isn't it? I mean, is Jesus, according to this, he, he's sexist, he's religiously discriminating, and he's racist, all in one little short section, seven verses. Say it isn't so. Is this what we see? I mean, if, if, if I, as a pastor or one of my elders, one of the elders here, if we did this to one of you ladies, 
we would probably be asked to stop being an elder. We would probably ask for you to have some counseling. Because apparently what we're seeing here is we're seeing ignoring, talking down to, and name-calling. I mean, even if we just did those, all of a sudden we're going, whoa, wait a second, what's going on here? What do we make of this? You know, we've seen Jesus heal all sorts of men and women and children. So sexism doesn't work. But why is he saying this? Neither does racism work because there's Canaanites in Jesus' genealogy. He'd have to be racist against himself. And it can't be that they're Gentiles and they worship something else. Think of the Magi who came and were at his birth. Or the Roman centurion who literally worships the, the emperor. He healed all of them. What about the Great Commission? Go into all the world and save only the Jews. No, that's not what it says. How do we make sense of all of this? So why do I bring up this, this kind of tension that we see here? I bring this up because in our world right now, there is a lot of push from people outside the church to push Christians into some of these more difficult passages and say, see, what are you going to do about this? What are you going to do about that? And unfortunately, we're not equipped enough. We're not, we're not capable enough to be able to dig deep into God's word and go beyond the superficial reading. Many would say that this is a contradiction. Jesus says to do this, and here he's doing something different. So they'll say, the Bible's fake. See, over here Jesus is a jerk, and over here he's nice. Can't have it both ways. Or maybe Jesus wasn't really God. He was just a human, just a nice guy that people wrote a lot about. So when we see passages like this, we're left with really, the world says we have two options. The first option is called the ostrich option. And this is where we put our head in the sand and we do something like, we're just not going to talk about those passages, right? These are tough. These might hurt people. They might be misunderstood. So we're just going to kind of leave those passages aside. And, and honestly, this is what some of us grew up in. I know when I, was, when I was really coming to a knowledge of the Lord, I grew up in a seeker-sensitive church. And in this church, from the pulpit, we didn't talk about tough issues, we wanted to make it easy for people to come in the door. We didn't want to deal with these difficult things. We would deal with that in our Sunday schools or, or Bible studies. Well, the problem with that is, is that if most of the people coming and most of the Bible study they're getting is in the service, and you're not ever dealing with those hard things, they've never been exposed. And guess what happens? Someone brings it up in a college class or in a TikTok video or online somewhere, and they go, What? I'd never heard that before. That's in our Bible. So that's one option, to kind of hide it and not deal with it. The other option is what I call the toilet option. And this is where you go to the Bible and you find something you don't like and it's garbage and you go, we'll flush the whole thing. We'll just get rid of all of it. Because if one part's not true, then all of it's not true. If I can't understand one part, then the whole thing must not be there. And therefore, we're going to throw it all away. This second option, the toilet option, in our world today has a name. And it's very, uh, it's very popular, as in the, the, there's a lot of press about it. It's called deconstruction. And this is where someone who has been a believer from child or young adult goes off on their own, like all kids do eventually. Amen. Right? They go off and do their own. I saw some of you guys nodding, okay? So I know that you're ready for kids to go, right? Just kidding. But they go off on their own, 
And all of a sudden, they have to decide, is this theirs? Is this faith theirs? And the term deconstruction is they're tearing it down to see if it stands, if it's able to stand, if there's a foundation. This deconstruction is not helped by the internet age where there's lots of information out there, but most of it's not well thought out. Most of it has not looked at both sides or dug deep. It's more the superficial. And so you can easily go online and type in, the Bible is A, and you'll get racist book, homophobic book, misogynist book, inaccurate book. God is a monster, a bully. One, one quote says this, God of the Old Testament is an unpleasant character, he is jealous and proud of it, petty, unjust, control freak, vindictive, bloodthirsty, misogynist, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilial, megalomaniac, sadomasochistic, and a malevolent bully. Yikes. So these are always backed up with claims of evidence from the Bible. Again, with a really superficial look at a verse or a concept without looking at the whole scope of things or doing a simple word study. There's lots more to be said about this idea of deconstruction. I think all of us go through something similar where we go, is this faith really mine? The world comes along and tries to fan it into a flame and then a bigger fire. So much so that there's actually a term now called exvangelical. These are people who used to be evangelical and are now ex. And they're out there saying, here's why I'm not that. Many times it has to do with something like what we see in this passage today. We read a passage that doesn't fit on our first viewing and we go, okay, doesn't fit. It must be a mistake. Therefore, and we start doubting the entire scope. And I'm going to say that this passage actually provides a third way for us to go. Not the ostrich, not the toilet, but instead a third way where we can actually see what's there more clearly. And when we do this, one of the things that's really encouraging about this passage this week is that as we dig in to this story, Jesus just becomes even more beautiful. He becomes more amazing. He becomes more heroic. Because we love to put Jesus in a nice little box and say, this is the only way he ever does anything. When in actuality, Jesus goes, no box can contain me. At the end of John, it says, if all the things that Jesus had written, had said, and had done had been written down, not all the books in the world could contain it. And so, again, we need to remember that. So, the goal for today is for us to see, here's what the Bible says Jesus is like, and we're confronted with something that doesn't seem to fit, when we actually are able to understand what's going on there, with no secret knowledge, no pushing things aside, but look at what's really there we can see Jesus more clearly and he gets more amazing. Because what does Hebrews promise us? Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we better hope so. Because if the Jesus yesterday is different than the Jesus today, then we're still in our sins. But the Jesus yesterday took our sins from us and it's here now and it will be waiting for us in heaven. So the main idea for this passage is the Canaanites... The Canaanites, that the Gentiles are allowed in. We're going to talk a little more about that next week. But for the purpose of our sermon today, I want to deal with stories in the Bible that don't fit. And I want us to deal with how do we make sense of that, and we'll see the hope that is there. So, back to our story. 
So Jesus is there. This, this Canaanite woman comes up and asks some questions. The ostrich option would say, we need to soften this, right? Jesus called her a dog. Well, he didn't mean a big mangy dog. He meant those little dogs that people carry around, right? A house dog. And actually, the Greek term is little dog, right? So, I mean, I, I know that calling somebody a dog is probably not usually what you want. Like, guys, okay, you're like, I want to be the big dog. Okay. But I guarantee you there's not a lady in here going, please call me a dog. It's just not a good term. No matter how you slice it, it's not used positively in the Bible. So we can't go, ugh, this, you know, we, we also can't just say, we're going to skip this passage. Let's move on to the feeding of the 4,000. Can't do that. The toilet option is, hey, maybe we got this Jesus thing wrong. And this, this passage makes no sense, so maybe we jettison the whole thing. Well, clearly we're not going to do that. This third option keeps the harshness of the passage, but at the same time allows Jesus to be who he is. And oh, man, is he amazing. So let's set the context. Let's set the big picture context here. When is Matthew writing this? Matthew is writing this post-resurrection, post-ascension. Jesus is up in heaven at the right hand of God. Matthew is sitting down. He's writing out his take of what happened. The Holy Spirit comes along, and however that interaction works, the Holy Spirit says, write these things on. So he is writing all of these down. So first we know God wanted these words written down. Secondly, Matthew wanted these words written down. And so there's got to be some kind of point here because Matthew adores Jesus. Remember, he's one of the disciples. Only disciple that doesn't die for Jesus is John, and it's not for lack of trying. All the rest die for Jesus. They love him so much. What an awesome picture of where they get to in their faith. So this is who Matthew's adoring. Is he going to put a story in there that's going to be making Jesus look bad? No. One, I don't think there are any stories that make Jesus look bad. But this is telling us something specific. The Holy Spirit and Matthew want us to see it. So let's see if we can see it. Look at verse 21. Jesus went away from there. That's the Sea of Galilee where he had been, the west side of the Sea of Galilee, about 99% Jewish. And he goes to the north, Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are modern-day Lebanon and Syria, up to the north. One author calls this area pagan land. I don't think they have any rides. Okay, all right. I'm just letting it, I'm just letting it sit. The people from here have already come to Jesus. Matthew 4, 24, it says some people had come from the north. The term that's used there is the same term for Tyre and Sidon. Also in Matthew 11, Jesus has been speaking about this area. So this is the northernmost area above the northern kingdoms of Israel. Verse 22, and behold. Now that's a weird phrase there. There's not a really great word in English. So we use the word behold. What this word actually means in the Greek is like, surprise! But it's not like surprise, like, hey, here's a birthday party, yay, right? It's a startling change of expectations. That's what that word means. It doesn't really translate well. But basically, it's this was not expected, right? This was an unexpected person to show up. And it says, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying. Now, Canaanite, that's an old term. The Can Canaanites were those who were the original inhabitants of Israel, the sworn enemy of Israel. These are the ones that were kicked out of the promised land. 
So he's using a really old term for her. Another term that's used in Mark is the Syrophoenician woman. So in Mark chapter 7, the same story is told, and it calls her a Syrophoenician. It's the same place. Syrophoenicia is the name of the area. Canaan is the name of what it was way back in the day. Matthew's pointing out that she was an enemy of God. She's from the family that's an enemy of God. It says she was crying out. This word crying means to exclaim loudly. So she's loud and she's crying. So have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. The word Lord there is the word kyrios, which can be used for God. It can also mean uh, a person with land ownings. Son of David is the Messiah. So we see these two phrases, and we see these phrases every once in a while. Some places they're used condescendingly. Later on, when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, we see the condescension where they call him Lord, and they put robes on him and the, and the crown of thorns. But Jesus here sees the heart. Matthew sees that she is a woman of faith. And when she cries out, Lord, Son of God, she follows it immediately, or she starts with, have mercy on me. So she is saying, you are the Messiah, and you're my Messiah, and I need your help. The last time anyone called out for mercy was back in chapter 9, verse 27, when the blind men cry out and say, have mercy on us. So she recognizes that he's something special. He's not just going to just ignore her in her mind. She's not expecting that. It's interesting, the Pharisees and the scribes know more about the God of the Old Testament than this Canaanite woman could ever know, and yet they miss it. I think the comparison here is on purpose. Matthew brings these out. These Pharisees who know their Bible, they have the first five books memorized, but yet Jesus stands in front of them and they want nothing to do with them. And this woman, an enemy of God, sees right through it. A woman, a Canaanite, and a pagan, all in one person. About as far as you can get from a Pharisee from the beginning of this chapter. Verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. Now, this is, I think, kind of the the, the key idea of why this is in here. Everywhere else, when anybody addresses Jesus and asks for something, he responds immediately. Even if it's, hold on, we're going to wait here for a bit, and then we'll do it. He responds immediately. This is the only time it's recorded in Matthew that he doesn't respond, right? Later on, we'll see Jesus not responding, you know, to, you know, Herod Agrippa, right? Or, or the different charges made against him by the Sanhedrin. But this is the first time someone comes to him, and he just doesn't respond. And that's why this is included. The only comparable story would be Jairus' daughter from chapter 9. This is where Jesus is held up and he's not able to go because of the the woman that touches his garment and power leaves from him. And they say, oh, your daughter's dead. And Jesus goes, no, she's not dead. That delay magnifies the glory of God. This is as close as we can get a parallel, but really there isn't a parallel. Jesus not answering her a word is an interesting thing to do. And I think it's the first, and I'll give you a first little glimpse of it, is this is a test. He's wanting to to pull some faith out of her that wouldn't normally just appear. Jesus has had lots and lots of people come to him and go, heal me, and there's no evidence that they became disciples or followers or that they had anything other than the desire to be made well. And we'll see this next week as well. Lots of people come to him. We don't hear anything about them after they're healed. This woman, though, persists. Continuing in verse 23, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. Now, this is an interesting 
phrase here, we don't really know the tone. Because it could be one of two ways. It could be them saying, Jesus, would you heal her and then send her on her way? Or it could mean, send her on her way, we don't need to heal her. And we don't know. The text doesn't really help us, even in the Greek. Either way, I don't think it matters. The disciples are impatient. The disciples want her out of the way, and they want Jesus to get rid of her. And then Jesus responds, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, for, the, for the, the disciples, all Jewish men, this would have been like, oh, okay, good. We're not hanging out in Gentile land, pagan land forever. But for her, this would have been a slap in the face. You're not here for me, but I, I need you. I'm, I'm in need. Help me. See, this woman's on a quest. We see lots of quests in the Bible. The Gospel of Luke has like 10 quests of people coming to Jesus. Here in Matthew, this is one of only two. Matthew 19 has a, another one where there are obstacles placed in the way. Any good quest story always has things you have to go through. If you've read The Hobbit or if you've read Lord of the Rings or books like that, the main character has to push through things to grow their character. Now, those are fictitious and ironically belt, belt on Christian worldview, right? J.R.R. Tolkien. But this is Jesus going, I want you to push in and Get through these obstacles because by getting through them, you're going to show the great faith you have, not only to yourself, but to everybody who's looking. Look at verse 25. This is an amazing verse. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. All right, let's get into that word knelt. That word knelt there is the word proscuno, which means to fall prostrate. That is a word that is used for worship. So get this, she comes in and she bows down and worships him before he does a single thing. Now compare that to the disciples. Where, where did we just see the disciples? They're out there in the boat and the boat's going crazy and oh Lord, help us. They don't worship and then cry out to the Lord. They cry out to the Lord, then he does something for them and then they worship. Wow, this woman does the exact opposite. People come before Jesus, heal me, Jesus, and they heal him, and then they worship. What an incredible story this woman has. One author calls this the beatitude attitude, where you come begging in your spirit, meekly, hungering, and thirsting for righteousness, knowing that no barrier can keep you away from your Lord. She doesn't go, hey, Lord, I'm here. She goes, Lord, help me. It's really very interesting because that is almost the same exact words that Peter cried when he was sinking. And remember, the disciples only worshiped once they got what they asked for. Verse 26, Jesus answers her worship. Okay, so think about this. You go and you worship the Lord and you're, you're asking for your only daughter. We'll assume it's her only daughter because there's no other one mentioned. You're asking for your daughter to be healed and Jesus goes, sorry, it's not right for me to give the bread that goes to my children, Israel, the Jews, to a dog like you. Throw it to the dog. Not even hand it to the dog, right? You want to eat it? No, it's throw it. You're out there. Get away. What is Jesus doing here? Because this is the worst part, isn't it, if we're honest? See, this is a test of faith, right? We've seen this before. Let me give you the best example in the Bible. Abraham. What was Abraham told to do? Oh, he's told to go sacrifice his son, right? And we read that story, and we know how it ends. He's not going to get sacrificed. It was no big deal. But wait, wait. These are actual historical events. 
So parents in the room, put yourself in the mind of Abraham for a second. God has said, take a knife, take your son. His son was probably in his late teens. Take your son, you're going to take your knife, and you're going to plunge it into his heart. You are going to do that, and then you will have shown me you love me. Think about that. Abraham had three days in a row of imagining what that was like. The look on his son's face when life leaves and he took it. Talk about a test. Yeah, well, but come on, come on. Abraham didn't have to do it. Doesn't matter. Abraham suffered it for three full days. And out of it, we see this incredible faith that Hebrews says, Abraham believed on God that even if he killed his own son, God would have raised him from the dead. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, Abraham would not have known that kind of faith had it not been for the fact that God said, murder your kid. I, mean, I don't want that Bible verse in my Bible. Go murder your kid. I don't want that. But Abraham had that, and that became a watershed in Abraham's life. This moment here is this woman's watershed moment where the Lord answers her in a way she doesn't expect. Why? To pull out of her faith that would have never been there had he simply healed her daughter. One of the reformers says, the woman thinks the door is closed to her, but Jesus' intent is that she would try to find her way through the cracks in the wood. I love that. I think Spurgeon summarizes it well. Did you ever read such rough words from our Lord? Did such a hard sentence ever fall from God's lips? Oh, he knew her well. He knew that she could stand this trial and would be greatly benefited by it and that he would be glorified by her faith, not just then, but through all ages. Therefore, with good reason, he put her through these athletic exercises to train a vigorous faith. Doubtless for our sakes, he drew her through a test to which we would never be exposed had she not been a strong woman and not a weakling. She was trained and developed by his rebuffs. His wisdom tried her, but his grace sustained her. See, the whole point of this is that he wants tenacious faith to be pulled out of each of us. He doesn't just want a superficial faith. He doesn't want a faith that just is okay with the ostrich option. He wants a faith that digs deeper and deeper and deeper into the Lord, that is tenacious, that when the storms are going, we are not like those disciples at this point. We're like the disciples later when they survive amazingly, do miracles, amazing things. Read the book of Acts. That's where the disciples are going. That's what he wants to bring out in us. Verse 27, look at her response. This is amazing. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Charles Spurgeon wrote a sermon on yes, Lord. It was like an hour and a half on a yes, Lord. It's phenomenal. It'll be in our notes tomorrow if you want to read it. It is, I just, I thought I could stand up here with a fake beard and just read it to you, but um, I don't know I'd do it justice. She says, yes, Lord. Note, she doesn't get upset. Not how rude. This is, you're a jerk, Jesus. She says, yes, I agree. See, the thing is, Matthew has never been afraid of telling us when people get upset at Jesus. Throughout the Bible, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, multiple times it says, and they were offended, and they were offended. We saw this last week. The Pharisees were offended. He brings it up. 
He also does not shy away from people calling Jesus evil. Chapter 9, verse 3. Chapter 9, verse 34. Chapter 12, verse 24. They say, you're evil, Jesus. So if this woman had said anything else, Matthew would have included it. So what is she doing? She says, yes, Lord. She agrees with her God. She's saying, if the Lord calls me a dog, I'm going to go with it because he knows me better than I know myself. If he calls me a worm, I'm a worm. If I'm a snake, I'm a snake. If I'm a God-forsaken sinner in deserving hell, he is right. But praise be to God, he takes all of those. She wasn't offended. Again, Spurgeon says this, my first advice to every one of us is always agree with God. Remember, dear friends, that if the Lord reminds you of your unworthiness and your unfitness, he's only telling you what's true. Scripture describes you as having a depraved nature, as being a lost sheep. It's true. You're described as having a deceitful heart. It is also true. Quibble not at the faithfulness of God's word. Take the low place. Admit you are a sinner, ruined, lost, undone. If Scripture should seem to degrade you, do not take offense because it is only dealing honestly with you. And this is where she shows her great faith. She is so trusting of Jesus that even though he puts these roadblocks in front of her, even though he says, but aren't you a dog? Which was really a common term to call the Gentiles. Yeah, it's the other dog term, but it doesn't matter. No one wants to be called a dog. And so he says, but aren't you a dog? Aren't you one of the dogs, the ones on the outside? And she says, I may be, but I'm not just any dog. I'm your dog. Because the most important word in that sentence is not dog, right? It's the word there. The dogs get it from their master's table. She's saying, you're my master. I'm your dog, okay? You can make me into something more amazing than that, but I am yours. See the faith she sees here? She says, you are the son of David. She sees his identity. His position, you are Lord, you are the God of the universe. She sees her undeserving nature. Lord, have mercy on me. Her dependency on him. Lord, help me. Her position, yes, Lord, even the dogs. And then lastly, his willingness to give to everyone. Even dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She's saying, I'm okay with just a crumb. A crumb from you is better than anything I've been given in all of the pagan things in my world. Tyre and Sidon was not unreligious. They were ridiculously religious. They had gods galore. You don't think this woman has tried all of those? She's saying, they don't work. I'll take even just a crumb, just a little bit is all I need. Why would she want crumbs from a man? Why would she want crumbs from someone who is sinning against her at that moment? This little crumb was all she wanted. This attitude indicates that she views Jesus not as a sinner, not as someone who's come at her and gone, you woman, you Canaanite woman, you pagan woman, come on, I'm not dealing with you. Instead, she is responding to him like she should. The faith is being pulled out of her, and she is seeing him rightly. I mean, think about this. She's had three impediments thrown up in front of her. Three serious impediments. Jesus doesn't respond. He says he's only going to the Jews, and he's not going to give it to the dogs. Compare that to the Pharisees. How many impediments has Jesus thrown up against the Pharisees? Oh, we don't wash our hands. Compare, and look at her response. The Pharisees, well, we can't, you know what? If we don't wash our hands like four times a meal, it's not a real meal. Whereas she's going, 
I will not stop until you bless me. Even the disciples have seen miracle after miracle. And what does Jesus call them? Little faiths, mini faiths, tiny faiths. But look at how Jesus responds to her response. Verse 28, then, this is the turning point of the story. Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you as you desire. And your daughter was healed instantly. That word great there is the word megas in the Greek, which means mega. She has mega faith. She has gigantic faith. We've seen this one other time before. It was about a year ago in Matthew chapter 8 with the centurion who comes to Jesus and says, don't even come to my house. I'm not worthy. Heal my, heal my kid from here. Heal my slave from here. And Jesus goes, you have great faith. This is the same thing. Twice now, the only two people that have the mega faith are those who are outside of Israel, are those who don't have any hope other than Jesus Christ. In Matthew, there's four levels of faith. We have the unfaith, which the Jewish people have. We have the faith that leads to asking for a healing. All right, That's what most of the people that come in contact with Jesus have. Then we have the mini faiths, the little faiths in the disciples. And then finally we have the mega faiths, these persistent people, the centurion and the woman. These are the only two that have the mega faith. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It means to depend and trust in him and no matter what, continue to do it. Jesus had been testing this woman's faith. It becomes clear. Just like you put things under heat to test the purity of the metal, the same thing is here. See, this is not a story we should avoid. This is a story that tells us exactly what we need to see, which is Jesus is not just about revealing faith. He's about forming faith. So the third way to go here is go, look at her response to what Jesus did. Look at the disciples' response and go, okay, we're not, we're not missing the point here. The point is, it is shocking. The point is, it is very offensive. But when we see it for what it is, it is Jesus going, I'm going to pull something out of you. So you've said this before, Jesus likes to repeat himself, right? Repetition is the way people learn. And we see this a lot. Israel, over and over and over again, doesn't get it. Praise be to God, because that's like us. But here, what we see is we see that Jesus is teaching in a brand new way. Instead of repetition, he pulls something out you wouldn't expect. All of a sudden, everybody's paying attention because this isn't the way it normally is. I had a teacher at George Fox. And he was an adjunct professor who was only there the one year. He had lost his arm from the shoulder uh, down in a farming accident. He was the funniest guy. So he had the sleeve and he would roll his sleeve up on the non-arm, right? And he'd cross his arm with the fake sleeve. He was just the weirdest guy. But whatever he wanted to get our attention, he would do something outlandish, you know, something amazing. And, and, and what it was was he would jump up on a table. Right? Like Dead Poets Society, if you've seen that movie, right? So he would jump up on the table and go, exactly! You all nailed it! And I remember those days that he did that. Why did he do that? Because it shocked us. Because the ones sitting in the back that were snoring or the ones that were doodling or whatever went, I better pay attention. See, Jesus is going, I want this to shock you. Because sometimes those shocking things that you don't expect are the perfect moment to teach you something deeper than this same old, same old. And isn't that what he wants to do in our lives on a daily basis? 
He doesn't want us to get normal every day, the same thing. I wake up, I do my Bible. Every once in a while, he wants to punch us and take us lower. He wants us to go deeper into what he's done. I mean, we've seen this before, Matthew 11, right? Jesus is talking about what it means to follow him, and he says the odd phrase, my yoke is what? Easy. My burden is light. Those words don't go together. And when you throw them out there, you go, wait, what did I just hear? Back up. What was that? That's what Jesus is doing here. He's doing it with this woman. He knew from the, crea- from the dawn of creation this woman was going to exist, that she was going to walk in there. He knew the number of hairs on her head. She, he knew every bit about her. And when she walked in the door, I, I wonder if Jesus didn't kind of go, watch this. Watch what my disciples are going to see from this woman. Because for her, it looks like a, a, a disaster. But in, in actuality, it's a glorification. Her faith is on display for everyone to see. And the Lord of creation, Jesus Christ himself, says, this woman has the greatest faith possible. And we're talking about her here today. So let's look at three last things as we finish up. The first thing is that this jarring reply to the woman was Jesus' way to demonstrate her deep faith. She was a would-be disciple and became a disciple. Many other times, like in Matthew 8 and in Matthew 19, there's impediments put in front of disciples, and they go, oh, it's too much. Think of the rich young ruler. All right, what, is, what does he say? Go sell everything and give to the poor. And he goes, ah, it's too much for me. i got to go. Impediment, no faith, right? The roadblock was there, but it didn't stop her. Second thing we see, Jesus' harsh words were to instruct those who were listening, the disciples and us, of what preserving faith looked, persevering faith looked like. He was telling, just continue to push in, continue to pursue. Such faith and perseveres will not fall away in a time of testing. In fact, it comes back stronger. It comes back stronger only when we've gone through the deep depths. Think about it like this. Our lives are like pools of water. And what happens is, over time, a pool of water, without water rushing into it, all of the muck, all of the bad stuff does what? It settles to the bottom. And so it looks like perfectly pure water. But we know that if we stir it at all, all of that muck comes up and it becomes this nasty, gross whatever. Jesus is doing the same thing here. He's stirring her up. He's stirring it up, and he's going, look, there's nothing bad there. And he does that with us too. He stirs us up so that we can have real faith in him. He can pull those impurities out of us. And we can have those little mini personal revivals. Here the woman's faith is stirred, but it's not a simple faith. It's a mega faith. And then finally, Jesus' words here show us what it means to take up your cross and follow him. Now I know that's a few weeks down the road, but simply put, if, you, if you're not ready to bear the offense of being called a little dog, then you're not ready to bear the offense that comes with being a follower of Christ. Following Christ is not easy if you're doing it right. The world will be repulsed by you. They won't like what you're doing. And so the question is, is are we in a place where we have the mega faith where we can stand? The disciples at this point, like I've talked about, they're not there yet. Later on, they're all there. They're all in. Well, except for Judas. But they're all in to have mega faith. This is exactly where we need to be. 
So Jesus takes an unusual method of teaching and shows us the amazing faith of this Canaanite woman and his disciples. We can learn from this. He knows what we need when we need it. He's like any good teacher or coach. There's a time to come along and put an arm around and say, we'll get them next time. And there's another time to get after them and say, let's go, challenge them. The Lord wants to draw out of each of us deep, mega, great faith. Sometimes he does that through all the ways he's done before. Other times he lets us go through it. But in all of it, Jesus is the master teacher. Jesus is the God of the universe. So when you have times in your life that don't seem like, there seems like there's a wall between you and God, it's not there to separate you from God. It's there for you to show your faith that you're going to continue to push through. It may look like a door that's closed, but the Lord wants you to push through the cracks because his goal in everything that he does, everything that you need to know that he does is he wants you more in love with him. He wants you to know him more greatly. And if there's an impediment in the way there, take heart. Because just like we saw earlier, he knew she could push through it. He knows you can push through it, but you rely on him and his spirit to do it. Praise be to God, we're not doing it on our own. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, and thank you that we get to study this passage. Lord, thank you for including it in your word. I know there's many who have stumbled over this, and I know you have a plan for them, and you're going to get a hold of their hearts too. But I, I pray, Lord, that as we look at passages like this, that we wouldn't stumble, but that we would be drawn more and more into the amazement that we should have towards your son. What an incredible teacher. What an incredible example for us. Help us to see him more clearly as we continue to study your word. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.